Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. A number of years ago, in probably my, my late teens, so sort of a couple of years ago, a couple of decades ago, let's be honest, I had a dream. Now, I'm not one of those people that remembers dreams. I don't have dreams. or I don't know if I have dreams often or not, but I certainly don't remember having dreams very often. This one, therefore, stood out, and it, and it also had features in it which particularly made it stand out to me. And the sort of guts of the dream was that I was uh, in a place not far from where I grew up. I was actually in, the, in sort of the rough area uh, within Manchester, a place called Burnage, not far from uh, where, I, where I spent a lot of my sort of childhood. And I parked the car. That uh, It was a, a little silver metro, should you care for detail. This is the car that my, my mother owned. She let me, uh, let me drive 1.4 engine, very small car, very quick. Uh, just the kind of thing you want to learn to drive on. And uh, I parked the car and, and left it for a little while. And I went away from the car. And what I found when I got back to the car was that the whole car, uh, every window had been smashed. And the bonnet and the boot uh, were up. And uh, the engine, and there was smoke sort of arising from that front area of the car, but the engine had been removed. And in the back of the car was a bag, which is a Tommy Hilfiger bag a friend had given me. Uh, and in the Tommy Hilfiger bag was my Bible. And I went to the, I went to the back of the car because my Bible was given to me by my, by my father. It's very precious to me. And I found that in the bag, the Bible hadn't been stolen. So despite the fact that the car had been completely ransacked, the Bible was there. And I felt a deep sense of relief. But I could see over to the other side, probably about 100 yards away or so, a group of people and they were sniggering. And I knew that they knew something about what had gone on. Um, but of course, I didn't approach them. And then the dream ended. That dream, for a number of reasons, was, was and is really significant and, and to me. It held me together, really, in a whole season where it felt like I'd lost my engine. Uh, I, th- I think I'd lost my sort of reason for existence. My faith, even, had, been, had fallen apart, really. I was really, really struggling probably in the five to ten years after that dream. And somehow, my calling, if you like, the Bible, what that represented was just about still present, despite the fact I pretty much abandoned faith in some, at least, of that period. But I've begun to think again about that dream recently. And, and maybe even, and like anything with God, you can understand it on so many different levels, can't you? And actually, what I've been thinking about recently is what the engine symbolizes, what it means, because I feel that God has begun to, personally for me, awaken ambition. Being in a season where uh, I've sort of lost any real sense of ambition. Now, we've come here and we've started a church, and and look at you, you're beautiful. And, And some of you come, like, every week. It's amazing, really. And God, that you know, you just need a certain amount of ambition to bother sort of leaving London where it's 
well, horrible really, but uh, leaving London, you know, bright lights and all that, to come somewhere else and start a church. I know you need some ambition for that, but the real inner drive that characterized me in my, in my sort of late teens and early 20s is just gone. And I've certainly developed, I've felt God repurposing ambition. I feel he's given me ambitions for different things. I feel more ambitious for his presence, more ambitious for prayer than I've ever been. But I've, I've had a sense that something's missing. Something still needs to re- be reborn. And in the midst of that, I've been thinking about this dream again. What does it mean for me to have my ambition reawakened? We're in a series on saints. It's called Saints. <laughs> and each week we're looking at a different group of people, uh, a different period of history where people have lived out saintly lives, that is to say, holy lives. Last week we talked about ordinary saints, just the regular people who were in and around uh, the, the life of the church in the early time, whose lives were so compelling that they infected and impacted the world around them. And we made the point that each of us is called saints in the New Testament, and therefore what they did is for us to do. That is to say, holy lives are ours to lead today, and by the grace and the power of God, we can all make a measurable impact in and around our world in the small ways. And today I want to look at what it means for saints to carry holy ambition, and I know as even I say that, I know what you're thinking because you're sort of all squinting at me and some of you are doing that thing where you twitch. You're thinking, what does ambition have to do with sainthood? What does ambition have to do with holiness? Because so many of us have been taught to distrust ambition, haven't we? We've perhaps grown up around the church. We're Brits to start with, so we have that disadvantage. Just from the off, let's name it, we're British. And if we see an ambitious person in our culture, you know what we like to do? Gossip about them. Well, you know, the whole thing of like the tall poppy syndrome, if somebody's flourishing and thriving, has a vision for the life. You know what we call that? We use another A word for it. It's not ambitious, it is arrogant. Where we see ambition, we often misdiagnose it as arrogance. We just write it off before we've even engaged with the content or even the the source of the ambition. And for those of us who've been churched in our past as well, we've got another thing working. And maybe some of us have even been in churches where uh, there hasn't been any emphasis on holy ambition. But we've perhaps emphasized other things. We've strongly emphasized service. And so the way to get uh, uh, trust, maybe, in our communities has been to faithfully serve without sort of a peep uh, for decades and decades. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. Service is absolutely a core part of the scripture. It's a core part of the ethic of the kingdom. You don't get anywhere in the kingdom without understanding that you're called to serve. And yet, that is not uh, the antithesis of ambition. Do you know, Jesus was ambitious. You know that, don't you? Jesus had more ambition than any other person in human history. You know what his ambition was? To save every last one of us. That's a lot. That is a lot. You wake up in the morning, you're Jesus, you think, what's on today? What do we got today? What's ahead of us today? Salvation of the world today. 
Okay, well, I'll just begin where I am. I'll heal this person. I'll teach it. You know, I'm not saying Jesus was arrogant in any way, but he, was, he had a sense of appropriate sense of call, a vocation of ambition on his life. He wasn't shrinking back. There was no false humility. Jesus did not, did not show even a trace of Britishness in him. Moreover, Jesus never calls ambition bad. Now, Jesus certainly does recognize unholy ambition, right? There's that moment, or there's a number of moments in the, in the New Testament where he's around his disciples, and there he is. And if he had a piece of wood like this, he would just bang his head against it. He's about to go into Jerusalem. He's about to lead them into Jerusalem, and they think, don't they, that they're about to be led in some triumphal procession, and he's going to take them into the temple. They're arming themselves with swords and clubs and all that They think they're about to overthrow Herod and Caesar and everyone else. Military victory is ours, they suspect. And Jesus is there. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but he's on his way to die. They haven't understood. And so what are they doing? Well, they're discussing on the way. He's about to give his life for the salvation of all humankind. About the salvation of every created thing. They're discussing who's the greatest. Hey, when we get into the temple, James... Who do you think, when he's sitting on his throne, who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? It's going to be great, isn't it? He's going to be one of us. Unholy ambition, right? Ambition that has been, hasn't been submitted or surrendered to Jesus. It, it's ambition, but it's not ambition for his kingdom. It's not yet come into line with the way of the kingdom. But the problem isn't the fact there's ambition. The problem is the wrong kind. It's unholy. It's unsanctified. It's not been washed yet. It will be. It will be. Jesus knows that. So he doesn't quash it. He tries to redirect it. He says, look, that's not the way. That's not the operating system of the kingdom. But he doesn't crush it. Unholy ambition is about, it's about domination. It's about personal glory. Yeah, it's, it's focused in on the self. It has to do with my life, my future, my peace, my comfort, my prosperity. It doesn't have to do with the greater good, the common good. It doesn't have to do with the good and the glory of God in the world. So the question is not should I have ambition or should I not, but Have I allowed my ambition to be sanctified by Jesus? Has he washed it? Have I even even admitted it? See, here's the danger we have if we repress ambition. It just pops out. It comes out, right? You can put on the Christian face. Some of us do it for decades. And we won't admit we're ambitious because it's not allowed in our church culture. But it's there. And it leaks. And Jesus says, no, 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 bring it into the light. Let me see it. Let's talk about it together. Can I, can I just, can I do something with it? Can I redirect it? Can I sanctify it? James Smith, James K. A. Smith says this. 
If you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, I know it's a Sunday, you've come here for a Sabbath, but there is a word that is long, phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to know a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, and, and this is the one I want, I want to hit you in the guts like a freight train because that's what it did for me this week, complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out in the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. Second, and this might take a bit of decoding, which I'll do for you, it is the telos, that is to say the goal, it's the end of ambition that distinguishes good from bad, separating faithful aspiration from self-serving aggrandizement. What he's saying at the end there is that you know whether ambition is holy or unholy by where it is aimed. The end goal. Does it have my glory, my safety, my peace, my comfort, or my families, my ethnic groups? Or is it about his fame, his glory, his name? It's just the goal of ambition that makes it holy or unholy. For whose glory is the question we could ask? And here's what I really want to communicate to you now. The opposite of ambition is apathy. And we need to hear this. I need to hear this. I've recognized in the last few weeks that there is a complacency in my life. And I hate it. I hate it. You know, the, the fact is, we're doing okay, aren't we? There's more of you here than there were at the beginning. And I could pat myself on the shoulder. I could even write a book. No one would read it. Probably I'd force you to read it. And you'd think, why is he writing this book? It's rubbish. <laughs> I don't know. I could grow a moustache. I could... <laughs> We could stop here, couldn't we? I, I could probably begin to pat myself on the back a little bit. I could, t- I could tell all my friends, you know, oh, this many people are coming to church. It's as if that's what we came for. As if that's the point of this. I don't feel that. The question is not how many people are gathered here. The question is how many people are yet to hear about him out there. How many people don't? Don't have hope. How many people are how many people in here, let alone out there? How many people, how many of us are anxious? How many how many of us are addicted? How many of us need greater freedom? There's so much more for us. We'll give ourselves no rest until his kingdom comes. That's the kind of life I want to live. An urgent, not a complacent life, an urgent life. The bishop, I was speaking to the bishop about this, so he was speaking to a group of us. He talked about unflappable urgency. 
I want that. I want the urgency that's birthed within by an understanding of who God is and what he's like. I need that personally. We need that as a church. We need that as a church. We are not going to see our city come alive unless we recognize that every one of us has a part to play in that. That is not the staff team's job. Every one of us will stand before Jesus at the end and we will give an account for the way we've lived our lives. Every one of us will. And he'll say, what did you do with what I gave you? How did you you spend your talents, your gifts, your money, your time, your treasure? How did you do it? Let me see. What creative ways did you imagine? We say, oh, I felt that was a bit ambitious. So I just sort of sat back and waited to see if one day the clouds would open and you would speak with a booming voice and tell me exactly how to do the things that you put in my heart. I don't imagine what he'll say if we come up with that. What about our nation? Yeah, before we get to our nation, what about our city? You know, one thing I've noticed, and I've noticed it recently myself, and I think it's more broad than this. You know, you go to London. I was, I was there on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it was, and you know, people are like kicking you in the street and pushing you over. Are you standing by the tube and you're like, I know somebody's going to push me in. <laughs> Hopefully it's when the tube doors are open rather than before the tube arrives. There's such a drive and, a, and an urgency. that I, It's not the case here, is it? One of the things we congratulate ourselves on, and we should, it's that people want to stay here after they've been to university. How many, just as a straw poll, how many of us stayed here after uni? Great, a number of us. Isn't that great? This is a place where people feel they can settle down. But isn't this a place also where people settle down? Ah, it's comfortable. I can raise my family here. I get a good job. Oh, sure, I'm not going to be one of those. I might not be mega rich, but I'm going to be safe. I can build a good life. That's not, God, God hasn't called us to that. What about our nation? I'm not going to get on the, go, go off on the rule Britannia train here. We have, though, in our history, ambition. Some of it has been deeply, deeply unholy. And, and I think we're spending, I think us often, actually, we're in a season of repentance. But in the future, I hope we'll be ambitious again. I just hope we'll be ambitious for a bigger vision, a better vision. How can we climb out of apathy? How can we find holy ambition? How can we allow the Spirit of God to sanctify ambition? I want to suggest three things from the story of Nehemiah. The first thing is that if we want to have our ambition sanctified, we need to find a kingdom vision. Find a kingdom vision. The context of Nehemiah is that... um, the, the remnant, the, the exiles rather, the people who have gone away, been dragged away from Jerusalem uh, and taken into exile, they, they have been given an opportunity to return and a, a small proportion, a remnant, go back to Jerusalem and they uh, begin the job of sort of rebuilding the temple. So worship can be established. That happened about 100 years before Nehemiah, but they never get as far as the walls. And so... Uh, They're really in chaos still. 
They're not able to worship as they wish they were able, uh, as they wish they were. They're interrupted. They're not a sovereign nation. Uh, God isn't able to. Uh, yeah, God isn't Lord of that space and of that place. Nehemiah's the cupbearer to the king, which means he's not a pastor. That's partly why his, his uh, I think his example is really positive for us. There are no miracles recorded in Nehemiah. The, Nehemiah's one of us, just like us. And here he is in the midst of it. And what he finds is a kingdom vision. This is what we read. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province of and the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, many other people have seen and heard this story. This news, you imagine, would have been filtering back from Jerusalem probably fairly regularly, as, as often as anybody came back. They'd ask for a report. What's going on in Jerusalem? And you know, they'd hear about it. This is not necessarily new news. I'm sure that there'd be gossips, gossip and there'd be whispers of this. But something happens in Nehemiah. Something has happened which enables him to catch on to it in a different way. He, has, he allows this news to become kingdom news, to develop a kingdom concern within him. He's willing to sacrifice his own prosperity, his own security, his own safety, because he's got a vision for his life that's bigger than his life. That's the beginning of ambition, of holy ambition, recognizing that there's something bigger in your life than your life. And that if you get to the end of your life and all you've lived for is your life, you've wasted your life. You can get to your deathbed and have a house filled with the finest furnishings. Even have a career that's glittering in its success. And if you haven't contributed to the bigger picture, the kingdom of God in our time, then your life is lacking the reason that you were given life. None of us are here for us. It's not about us. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be, John Lewis sofas, does he mean those? All these things will be added to you also. <laughs> Seek first, have as your priority, your urgent Priority, the kingdom of God. God's rule, God's reign, God's glory, God's fame, God's name in our time. Have that as your ambition. And everything else will order itself aright in your life. If you prioritize the kingdom, the rest of your relationships will fall into healthy order. It's not saying nothing bad will happen to you. It just means your life will be prioritized effectively if you start with the kingdom. But if you don't, if you flip it on its head, everything will fall apart. If you live uh, as, as somebody whose greatest concern is themselves, everything else is just going to fall apart. And many of us do this in the church. It's like we, uh, as a friend of mine said, it's like we read the Lord's Prayer backwards. We pray it backwards. We begin by praying, oh Lord, forgive me my sins. I've been a bit naughty this week. Deliver me from the evil one. Please provide my daily bread. 
None of these are bad things to be praying, by the way. But the point is we're supposed to start at the top. Oh God, hallow your name. Let your kingdom come in my life. Be king in my life. Even as you are in heaven, would my life reflect the kingdom and the economy of heaven? Don't let me live a life which is shrunken down where I'm just concerned with daily bread. I know that if I seek your kingdom, you'll give me the bread I need for today. But let me begin there. That's the way the prayer is meant to be prayed. A kingdom vision begins with a vision of the king. Now one saint, there's the segue, one saint who certainly found a kingdom vision was William Wilberforce. He's not yet Saint William. I think he deserves a sainthood sometime. He was born in Hull. Come on! Yorkshire! 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 I was born in, uh, born in Pontefract just down the road. Thank you. 1759, just a little bit before me. He had a privileged background. He became an MP at just 21 years of age. His initial ambition was personal success. He confessed to a friend, my own distinction. What? They spoke better, didn't they, back then? Even in Yorkshire. My own distinction was my darling object. I just wanted to stand out. My own distinction was my darling object. What's your darling object? My own distinction. He was close friends with the Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger. They were the political celebrities of their day. He was very popular in Parliament for a number of reasons. He had a sort of um, a speaking and a singing voice. Apparently he used to sing a lot in Parliament. His speaking and singing voice were melodious. So people, people knew him as the nightingale of Parliament. Isn't that great? But everything changed in 1784 when Wilberforce went on tour to Europe. Not a stag do. He, uh, he began to be deeply touched as he read a book, William Law's book. And here's the phrase, here's the title of the book. A serious call to a devout and holy life. I don't know what it is that you guys are reading on holiday. But I'm not sure it is a book with a title like that. And as he was reading this, he started to question his unbelief. He started to question his apathy. He, he'd had a sort of an awakening as a young man, which he just pushed to the side, and he began to ask again, is this real? And so he began to wake up earlier in the morning, and he would read the scripture, and he began to journal, and he began to have conversations with friends of his. And the Holy Spirit began to awaken him. He got a vision of the king. And at this point, he was really confused. What do I do with this? I've been in parliament. How can I stay in parliament? I'd, surely I've got to do something a bit more religious, this sort of ambitious stuff. I need to push it to the side. Don't I? And he had conversations with Pitt, the younger, and with John Newton, who was a former captain of a slave ship. Some of you know his story. Newton, who became an Anglican priest, Wrote Amazing Grace, was that John Newton? Yeah. Isaac Newton was the other bloke, wasn't he? Yeah. He was the one who worked out why apples fall on your head. And this is what Newton said to him. God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. Maintain your friendship with Pitt. Continue in Parliament. Who knows that but for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose 
for you. And did not God have a purpose for him? Wilberforce began from a completely different place to do the things he'd been doing before. He'd got a kingdom vision. His ambition had been sanctified and washed and he began to go into the place he'd already been sent and to work in a different way. Now he started his work on uh, the movement for the abolition of slavery in 1787, 20 years later. He and his friends won the first victory in Parliament. As it became clear, as the speeches were being read out, and it became clear that uh, for the first time the popular consensus in Parliament was with them, Wilberforce wept. But the battle wasn't over. He retired from Parliament at that point, an old uh, man. And on the 29th of July, 1833, just two days after he had heard that the final bill abolishing slavery entirely had been passed, Wilberforce died. Kingdom vision. What is God's kingdom vision for you in 2020? What is it? He's speaking. Have you noticed? Have you just begun to see? There's something about children in our city. Maybe you've had a child or been around children recently. Hearts has just begun to open in a new way. Maybe you've seen the plight of the elderly. In a new way. You're just wondering, God, what is it you're stirring? What is God's vision, kingdom vision for you? If you don't know, find it. Find it. Pray about it. Ask him. How are you going to find it? Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to locate our holy discontent. Here's what happened to Nehemiah. He says, when I heard these things, verse 4, I sat down and wept for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, again, Nehemiah's been confronted by news other people have been confronted by. He hears the same things as others have heard, but his response is different. Because he's got a kingdom vision, it stirs him in his heart. He's deeply upset. Isn't it said of Jesus in the Gospels? Numerous occasions, Jesus moved with pity. Moved with pity. So the kingdom vision It's connected to a softness of heart. I just believe that in these days, one of the things God is doing in this place is to release compassion. And I tell you what, I'm telling you this because I'm actually warning you. I don't know if some of you see me at the front, and it's not just me, but crying every single week. It's coming. It's going to come to you as well because we have to allow ourselves to be stirred by the Spirit of God. We've got to care for the things He cares for. We sing that song, don't we? Heal my heart, that one. Break my heart for what breaks yours. That bit, we love the song. What a melody, what a stirring anthem. But what if he does? Are you okay to be in this place and out on our streets with snot streaming down your face because the Spirit of God is stirring your heart? Because one of our great problems as a nation, I've noticed it, is not just apathy, it is fear of man. People pleasing. We're so concerned about what our neighbors think of us. And the greatest thing that stands in the way of the church becoming the church is the fear the church has for what people might think of us. They might think we're God-botherers, Jesus freaks. There are worse things 
There's a worse thing than that, and that is getting to heaven, standing before Jesus, and finding out that there was more you could have done for him. More opportunities to see his kingdom come in your life. Oh, there's nothing better. There's no thrill. I've never experienced a thrill like partnering with God. You've all, t- you've all seen it. When you see God moving through your life, you see somebody touched by his grace and his goodness in some way. It could just be a conversation where you share. You just share, you put an arm around them. I'm not saying it's Wilberforce-sized stuff all the time. I'm just saying when you see God move through your life, there's no thrill like it. There's no thrill life like I'll give up every other thrill for that thrill. Oh Lord, if it means Man City never winning a thing again. <laughs> and me partnering with you. Tongue in cheek, right? But how many other things are there? How many lesser loves are there? That we're just allowed to just distract us. Holy discontent. Ah, we're a nation that gets discontent. Oh, we love a moan. We love a moan. Oh, I tell the government's not doing this or that. Yeah, we love it. Don't know where that was coming from. (laughs) (laughs) The problem we have, where our hearts are stirred, we often outsource it. Oh, somebody should do something about that. The government should do something about that. There's, (laughs) who's done this one? You're walking down the street, there's litter all over the street. Where are the bin men? (laughs) Cleaning somewhere else is where they are. Pick the litter up. It's our city, isn't it? Oh, I wish people didn't let their dogs just poo on the floor. I've got a dog, I've got a bag in my pocket, but I'm not doing that. We just outsource it, somebody else's problem. We do this in the church all the time. When are the pastors going to do something about that? There's a problem in the church. There's something wrong in our city. I can't wait for our church to start a ministry for that. You start a ministry. God's given you the vision. He's expecting you to do something about it. It's hard. We're the church, aren't we? We together are the people of God. It's not somebody else's job. We outsource it. Your calling is often hidden in your complaint. What is your complaint? Understand this. God is calling you to do something there. might just be pray. certainly will be to start with. But there may be more. Some of us, we realize this over decades. That's certainly been my story. We, all, we, we outsource it. We also allow ourselves to be distracted, don't we? Oh, I'll do it when I finish the current season of The Crown. By the way, you don't need that today. You've got real life. It's more (sighs) HRH. There you were. Let me give you some information that might be helpful to you. Netflix is not going to stop pumping out new content. You're never going to get to the end of what Netflix has to offer you. You may as well get on with what God's calling to you now. We allow ourselves to become distracted, but the the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand now. We all have a complaint, if we're honest. Let me tell you about my complaint. It bothers me. The state of the church in this nation bothers me. 
it bothers me that many people's experience of church growing up and even now is that dead religion, empty. They don't sense the presence of God. They're not welcomed. In fact, they go into churches and what they feel is that they're excluded. They feel like it's some kind of toxic club that they could never become a part of. That bothers me, angers me. It angers me. Because this is the house of God and every person is called because of the gospel of Jesus Christ to find home here. And I don't want that to be the case. I don't want Jesus' name to be dishonored in our land. I don't want that to be normal. I don't want the church to have its aspirations and expectations set at the basement level anymore. It bothers me that we don't see more of God's manifest power working among us. It bothers me that when we pray for the sick, they're not healed. It bothers me. I don't know what to do about it, but I'm beginning to understand that God wants it to bother me. It bothers him too. What's your complaint? Because when you've found your complaint, you're ready for step three, which is to step out in bold action. Now, Nehemiah begins by boldly approaching heavenly powers. This is what we read. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, he goes on. I don't have time to read it all, but it begins by Nehemiah boldly approaching God, the God of heaven. And he does it with a, a, an honest recognition of who he is and his complicit, that he is complicit in what's been going wrong. You know, a new wave of God's spirit and God's power in an individual's life or in a corporate gathering at a church like this one, in a diocese like this one, in a city, in a nation, begins in repentance. I've told us this. There's no rain without repentance. We've got to each of us say, it is my fault. It is my fault. I am part of the problem. I am part of the problem. I'm apathetic as well. I'm complacent too. I confess my sins and the sins of my parents and the sins of my generation. I'm part of the problem, but I'm not, I'm not satisfied. Confession. There's also covenant prayer. <laughs> Nehemiah gets to a point here where he's praying scripture back to God. These aren't polite prayers. Oh, God. Oh, oh God. I don't want to bother you. I know you're very busy, God, but would you awfully mind just having a look at some of the things which are going on around here? It's, oh, it's getting a bit sketchy, but, but you're busy. It's not polite. God can't answer those prayers. It's covenant prayer. You know, here's what Nehemiah says. You said in your word that if we did this, you would do this, and you're not doing it. Come on. How many of us are ready to start praying like that? I'm ready. I want to learn to pray. As a place for just the, the, the daily, the, the, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, daily prayer, yes. But there's also a place for oh, prayer being birthed in the core of us and a, a season of urgency arising coming from 
holy ambition. I've got an example from the Hebridean revival, a remarkable revival, where God was breaking through everywhere. In one village, there was nothing happening, and a holy man, a blacksmith, like Nehemiah, a cupbearer, stands up and says, God, are you going to keep your word or not? Your glory is at stake. Revival breaking around everywhere else, not in this village, a blacksmith. Are you going to keep your word or not? Your glory is at stake. You know what happened? The room shook. Physically, the house was shaken. And they went outside and they found that spontaneously the village had gathered to repent and cry out to God. Who are the blacksmiths? Nehemiah approaches God, the God of heaven. He has a vision of the king. He approaches him boldly and then he approaches earthly powers again with the same boldness. I don't have time to go into this, but you've read, you've heard how he goes to the king. It would be impossible to imagine anybody approaching the king with a downcast face. That alone could lose you your life, and yet he was willing to do it because he was so consumed with heaven's concerns that he went to the king. (laughs) The king says, what's wrong with you? You look a bit down. What's going on? My heart's moved by the situation of my people. The king says, what, what, what can we do about it? One idea I had. You send me with all of your authority and all of the timber I need, and you basically wait as, as long as it takes for me to do it, and then I can do it. The king says, okay, we'll do it. Let's do it. This is what Wilberforce did. You know, he could have become almost anything. He could have been prime minister, followed William Pitt the Younger into office. But he had a bigger vision. His heart had been stirred. He'd seen the, he'd seen the kingdom vision. He'd developed a holy discontent, and he moved out in bold action. And the world that we live in is different because of him. And where we see these things coming together, we find acceleration. It's not there always like that. It took Wilberforce decades. But for Nehemiah, in 52 days, he... he uh, Achieved more in 52 days than in the 52 years combined. We want to see a church on fire. We want to see a city alive. We want to see his power moving through us. We're not the end of this. It's for them. How is it going to happen? Is it not about him stirring ambition in us? Is it not about us allowing him to sanctify that which is already there? Young person, you're building a career. Understand it's for him. It's for him. Maybe you're a little bit older and you're looking at your life and you're saying, are my best days behind me? I'm here to tell you no. There are new ambitions that God has for you. If you are single in this place, understand that your singleness can be a, is a gift for the kingdom. You have a freedom that maybe others don't have. If you're, if you're a married, you've got a family in this place, understand that your family is a gift for the kingdom. Who is it that isn't in a family you can invite into sharing in the life of your family? Everything's on the table. Everything's about him and his kingdom because we want to see this bigger vision happening in our time. The need of the hour is holy ambition. We don't need any more unholy ambition, but neither do we need repressed ambition. And this is the season I sense God is moving us into as a church. 
We came here with a holy ambition and we've not yet started. Why don't we pray? Stand if you would. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did both individually and in our lives together so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening. Thank you.